Hi, I'm Gigi, and this is Driven Minds, a Type 7 podcast. In this series, we talk to today's most renowned thinkers and doers to learn how they navigate through challenging periods of their lives. By sharing our stories, we hear ourselves and others, our thoughts, our worries, our insecurities, and only then do we realize that we are never as alone as we think we are. So my friends, I don't think I ever mentioned that this podcast has seasons, but it does. And alas, the first season is done. 12 episodes making this episode lucky number 13. Thankfully, I'm an optimist, which you probably didn't know. Otherwise, I would have to make an episode 14. You probably do know by now that I am a professional overthinker. So what better way to flex that muscle than to have a season review with a special guest named Ted Gushu. He's the editor-in-chief of Type 7, and this podcast is part of the Type 7 family. But I'm going to let Ted explain what that means in way better words than I can. So what's going to happen is that Ted and I are going to take a step back and rehash some of our favorite moments throughout the last 12 episodes and use them as a type of bouncing off point to do what we do best on this show, which is open up about our mental struggles and have conversations. So Ted and I have actually never met IRL because this podcast was launched during COVID and COVID had its own very lonely rule book. But we have gotten to know each other virtually, and we also found out that our main point of connection is that we both spent the beginning of our adult years in New York City. It is a place that makes your nightmares and dreams come true, sometimes all in a single night, especially in your 20s. But we're going to get into all of that. When I spoke to Ted, he was in the middle of a vineyard in rural France. Rural is so hard to say. Rural Either way, it made me jealous AF, but you cannot have it all. So here it is, our season review and conversation with Ted Gushu. Beginning of uh, last year, I really never like thought about wine and anything other than like what we like what you and I probably were growing up with with like the drinking culture, which is. Drink as much as possible, as fast as possible. <laughs> so, <laughs> Red cups all the way. No, I mean, this is this was the culture like the, like, like we grew up with, which is in the U.S., drinking is illegal uh, up until 21. Mm-hmm. Uh, so let's drink the, the cheapest possible stuff that we can steal as little kids and, <laughs> and try to like, you know, drink it in a really uh, unhealthy way. So when I started living... In Switzerland, I have a friend who's a really great wine dealer and, um, you know, a wine expert. And he put me down this path of actually, you know, having a really thoughtful relationship with wine mm-hmm. as opposed to uh, a consumption-based relationship. Mm. So I became somebody who was much more interested in in the storytelling aspect and the really the history of these places that are, you know, really so famous. And, uh, and that's just been like my latest... My, my latest journey with, with alcohol as a substance in my life, which has been a positive one at times and a super negative one at times. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. I've gone through, I've gone through periods where I wasn't drinking at all. And I was actually going to Alcoholics Anonymous because I wanted to learn about my relationship with the, with the, with the drug. And now I'm like, okay, how can I go and meet the actual winemaker and learn about the history? So that's, that's what you've caught me doing this <laughs> week. And, uh, and it's a pleasure to, to catch up with you finally. 
So I want to dig in just for anyone who isn't familiar. Can you tell us what type seven is and your day to day? So type seven was a project that was started uh, with the Porsche global marketing team and myself uh, when I left Petrolicious in 2017. They, they approached me to start talking about uh, how, how can we make sure that let me, let me phrase it this way. Porsche is a company that makes, in my opinion, art. You know, the, the, the cars that they make are, are sculpture, they're engineering. They, they, they are 10,000 disciplines of art that come together to make one product that is a rolling sculpture. And so if, we, if Porsche wants to exist in 100 years and the average person who went to a school like you did in a city like you did thinks to themselves, cars are lame. You can't cure that by buying billboards and you can't cure that by <laughs> throwing advertising money, you know, kind of randomly. So what we decided to create was a really genuine from the soul editorial product that that helped tell the story of Porsche as part of a larger conversation of art and culture. Because it is, and it always has been, and Porsche has always shaped these things. So we are a magazine that has one sponsor, and that sponsor is Porsche, and we talk about everything that is relevant to that message, which, you know, we have some of the greatest architects in the world that we feature their work. We have some of the best photographers. Like, it, we, we try to showcase the best of everything. And then what happens is uh, alongside of that, we, we also tell the story of young people that are actually passionate about Porsche around the world. And yeah, the Type 7 community is growing and vibrant. So you've really nailed it there. But you get to talk to the coolest people. I know, I know. And speaking of those people, I want to get into this because you are the season finale. And what we're going to do is take a cruise, so to speak, down memory lane and rehash some of the themes that came up throughout the first season. And we're going to get down and dirty with all of the good topics like anxiety, relationships, self-doubt, heartbreak, body image. And then Ted and I are going to talk about how these themes resonated with us with my personal goal of coaxing you into divulging your deepest, darkest secrets. I did warn you about this, Ted. So, you know, I hope all is kosher. Totally. I want to kick this off by going back to the first episode, which was Brian Grazer. And a big part of Brian's story was about social anxiety, which one might not necessarily expect because he's been in the forefront of the Hollywood limelight for decades. And he deals with all types of people all day, every day on set, off set, in the office as this Hollywood mega producer. And I'm curious what your experience has been with anxiety. Well, he really resonated with me because he was, if I remember correctly, he's also dyslexic. Yes. Yes. That was a huge thing. So I, I have a mild form of dyslexia and it's something really? that, well, it's, it's something that I've just functioned with and, and, and gotten on with, uh, in a very kind of New England upbringing sort of style, um, but uh, everything that he said about his social anxiety, about his, uh, about having something like dyslexia where you're just like, why am I like just a bit slower than everybody else? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. These were all things that resonated with me because they're all things that I've either privately uh, dealt with or professionally had diagnosed or, or anything like this. You know, I, I'm, I have extreme ADHD uh, that's, that was diagnosed. I was medicated for years when I lived in New York, much like almost everyone else I knew in New York. Uh, 
I was, yeah, I was it's really an epidemic. I was on Vivance for like five years and it was a disaster. Like I was, I was completely unhappy, uh, on that drug and it was doing stuff to my body and to my, my mental state that I was really unhappy with. But then it became, you know, in 2010, when I got to New York, these weren't conversations that people were having. It was just like, why aren't you on no. Adderall? Why aren't you uh, medicated? Why aren't you partying till six in the morning? What's wrong with you? Um, and that was, you know, 2010, like right after the crash, when everything was coming back in New York City, that was just the vibe it was just everyone was going full gas 100% of the time. And you needed to be medicated just in order to like, to compete. And I think that, that that's a huge issue in, in, in New York, especially of that just medication lifestyle to, to get a to, to, to sidestep the actual hard part of doing the work that gets you to a good place. Did you have an experience with anxiety or was it just ADHD? No, I always had, I always had some form of anxiety because I'm, I'm, I'm an extremely empathic person. Like I, I feel everyone's feelings all the time. And, um, it's really one of those things where I'm not, uh, I, how do I describe it? I'm not, I'm not somebody who's capable of going into a room and not immediately feeling the entire vibe of the room to the point where it can be crippling. Mm. So like, mm-hmm, I, I, it's mm-hmm. really, uh, like if, if I, if you were, if you start telling me a story about your dog dying or something and you start crying, I'm crying. Like there's no choice. It's not, <laughs> I, I can't shut myself off to that. So as a result, you know, you, you get to a point where you're so empathic that you start you misreading people's feelings of what you think they're thinking about you. So you get into a point where you start thinking that people are saying negative things about you, but in reality, then maybe they're not saying anything. So like being empathic does not mean you're always right. If that makes sense. Like, like you, you can start sucking in feelings that actually aren't even there. And when I was, when I was heavily uh, prescribed all these drugs and when I was living in New York, uh, this was something that would be magnified hugely because you have this like, um, amphetamine rush that, that kind of fuels, mm. that fuels that anxiety and makes you like hyper focus on maybe they're saying something about me. Oh my God, I can't believe they're saying, oh my, oh, oh my, what have I done? Did I say something wrong? Did I offend somebody? And so once, once I got away from that, you know, you, you take a lot of the fuel away from the anxiety because you're not you're not giving it uh, an artificial source of energy, but you end up getting to a place where you can say, "Look, I know what's real and I know it's not real." And even though something might feel real, I have the the mental experience and knowledge at this point to say to myself to like to, to dis, disarm it, if that makes sense. How do you do that, though? It's it's. I, it's through being radically intellectual about it. You know, I'm somebody who has no problem being extremely honest with himself. So I'll be like, you feel like you've got a, a whacked out body image today. Why? What's going on? Well, you haven't gone for a run in three weeks. You've been drinking a lot of uh, Bordeaux and you've been eating nothing but cheese. <laughs> like, oh, okay. So it's probably the fact that I've been like kind of neglecting my body for the past few weeks, which has given me this anxiety around my body image issues. And then it's like, oh, Okay. Well, then that's what it is. So then I know what to do. Uh, it's it's the, the the thing in my experience comes around when you you actually can't make the jump to being honest about what your actual issues are. And it's something yeah. that you talk very openly about. And you're like, no, no, it's actually if I talk about it, then I can look at it. It's like what, why I started going to therapy. Exactly. Why I started going to therapy. You can take the hat off and look at the hat as opposed to being, being mm-hmm. in a room with no mirrors. So it's like 
It makes perfect sense. You go, oh, there's the problem. Then if you choose then not to do something about it, then it's your fault. You're the asshole. <laughs> In reference to what you said about body image, I, I know this sounds nuts, but I also said this to Justin during our episode because until he came on the show, I never had a real conversation with a man about body image. Oh, yeah. Like, I didn't know the issue was on the radar to that extent. I always assumed it was a woman's issue because that is what has been perpetuated so heavily. Do you feel the pressure to work towards a certain body or look a certain way? Yeah, I mean, I, I was bulimic for almost a decade. Like, uh, because, really? because I got in, into, into my mind such an image of how I was supposed to be. And my, my relationship with food and impulse control around food was so out of whack that I uh, was manifesting like this uh, internal dialogue that I'd gotten from an ex-girlfriend in, in university. And I just was like, I would be casually bulimic for a decade. And it was something that I, I eventually kind of woke up from because I, I, I was in such a, a, a not, I didn't feel controlled by it, but I would just notice, I'm like, oh, you know, I just, you just watch yourself eat a, like a ton of cake or whatever it was, like, you know, eat a whole slice of pie mm -hmm. and then like go bring it up like this. And I've talked about it with my therapist and I've talked about it with friends and I'm happy to talk about it here because I think it's men are just as at uh, the mercy of this as, as women. And it's not, uh, it's not something I'm ashamed of. I'm like, okay, that's part of my life. That's how that happened. It's not affecting me at the moment, but, uh, but you know, you, you can get to a place pretty quickly that gets you into a relationship where you're not happy with food and you're not happy with your body. And in reality, like I'm, you know, doing better physically than I have in a while, but I still like, I'm like, oh, my, my nipples are kind of puffy. You know, it's, it's still, it still gets into your head, mm -hmm. these little things you had. Cause I, in gym class in high school or in middle school, I was, you know, the kid with puffy nipples and I had boobs and it was like, you know, I was, I was teased mercilessly as a kid cause I was overweight always cause I, I come from a very indulgent family and we always enjoyed everything, the best of uh, food and everything really that we lived our life very, very in hindsight, you know, we had a great time, <laughs> but I, I, I look at my life with, with such pleasure and pride and I've, I've had such an amazing ride. So keep, keep that as an asterisk with everything I'm telling you, like looking back, I, I, <laughs> I wouldn't change anything. Like I'm, I'm somebody who's deeply grateful for every opportunity that I've gotten to experience because I've gotten to do some taste, try, fly, go, drive, to do some of the most amazing things anyone's ever done in life. But I, I would be lying if I said that I wasn't teased mercilessly as a kid and was made was fat shamed and, mm -hmm. and all these things that gave me uh, all sorts of like just issues that I had to overcome that were kind of superficial that I didn't need, you know, like, uh, and, but uh, right. a, a big part of my life philosophy is I never take myself so seriously. So you know, yes, I was teased mercilessly. Yes, I was done all these things, but I don't feel, I don't, I don't want to feel like I was a victim. Like it just happened and that's the way it was. And, and I, I'm still just delighted to be alive and have, I'm having a great time. Yeah. I don't know. I, I, I think long and hard about those moments that were painful as a kid. You know, I, I almost died of whooping cough. I almost died of pneumonia several times. Wow. I remember like, I was allergic to grass, but like I was obsessed with learning how to play soccer. So like I sucked at soccer. I was the worst person playing soccer because I was just wheezing the whole time. And, and it was, this was the nineties. So nobody 
nobody was like, oh, perhaps my son has like an allergy to a special pollen. They were just like, well, he just sucks at soccer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, I do. So I'm like, I can look back, I can, I can look back on it and laugh and be like, well, yeah, you know, obviously I was had a, had a physical disability that made it so I was suck at soccer. But at the time, my dad was like, what are you, the cameraman? You're always just filming outside the action, you know? So. We, ha- I have a good sense of humor about it, and uh, and th- that to me is the ultimate, um, the ultimate key in, in my life is just learning how to laugh about all of this and 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 move on from it because I'm 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 really blessed to, to live the life that I do, uh, and and I'm really grateful for it. You mentioned that you were in a relationship when the bulimia started. What was it? about the dynamic that set it off for you? Well, it was, uh, it was more, the relationship was around, like I was 70 pounds heavier than I am now when I started that relationship. Okay. And I, I lost 60 pounds in like three and a half months, like through uh, caloric restriction and diet restriction. And uh, my weight has yo-yoed a bunch of times. As a kid, I became obsessed with the Atkins diet. Like I was like 14 years old doing the Atkins diet because I was just a big, I was a really big kid and, uh, and it was uncomfortable and wasn't fun. So I, I would, I always had, I had a way to do something about it. And then once I got to my goal weight, it wasn't like she encouraged me to start becoming bulimic. I just looked at it as a mental excuse to like, to be able to cheat on, on my diet. It wasn't even. I didn't even have like a shame about it. I was just like, oh, let me do this. And it was something that would happen maybe once a month. It wasn't a, a huge, it didn't dictate my life, but it was something that I was like, you know what? This kind of sucks that I'm even like thinking to get down this pathway that instead of me learning how to enjoy the right amount of pizza, I'm going to enjoy so much pizza that I feel terrible. And that was like, I can't, I can't describe the moment that that became uncool to me in my head of like, okay, eating the right amount of pizza is actually cool. (laughs) And I've reached a point now where I I understand better what my body needs to be happy. You know, I'm 32, like, uh, I'm not, this is, this isn't a new meat suit, you know, I'm, 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 I'm getting there. Uh, and then I, I, I listen to a lot of other people talk about their struggles. I listen to your podcast. I listen to, uh, I, I listened to a, a number of other really educated people talk about their struggle. And then I see a therapist, uh, which allows mm-hmm. me to, which allows me just like this conversation to talk about, you know, things that aren't going as they should, uh, and, mm-hmm. and learning about why that's not happening and learning about that. And, you know, I, I even during lockdown, it was really difficult to get a good therapist while I was living in Switzerland. So I went through BetterHelp, which was, you know, shout out BetterHelp. Yeah, yeah. Yep. <laughs> they're not even a sponsor, <laughs> yeah, but like it's a great platform. They they sponsor a lot of podcasts, but like I, I got paired with an amazing therapist who's in Wisconsin. It was Wisconsin, Madison, Wisconsin. And uh and we we had a six month relationship over, over video chat, you know, a couple times a week checking in, and it was super helpful. Uh, you know, even even still. I, much like everyone else, I was going insane by the end of the, the last lockdown. But it really, uh, I think it minimized the, the potential damage of a global pandemic uh, on my psyche. The most empowering theme that ran throughout the season, at least for me, was how people seemed 
to use their struggle as creative fuel. Uh, For instance, Sarah Baba used her art as a vessel to deal with her food issues, remember? And Licky Lee channeled her pain from heartbreak into her songs. Did you have any struggles that ended up fueling your work? I mean, uh, anyone who's creative is struggling. This is is my experience in my life. Uh, And I have a lot of beautiful creative friends who do a beautiful job uh, expressing themselves in a very positive way. But that, in my experience, creativity, it comes out of an internal struggle. Uh, uh, and I don't care who you are. Like the, if, if, you, if you think that you're not, you're probably lying about it to yourself, if that makes sense. I think everyone is struggling. I think everyone has casual issues. I think everyone worries about the, the shape of their body. I think everyone... Everyone has these issues based on the way our society has been structured for so long. You know, some of us have a better have a better mm-hmm. vocabulary at this point because we've we've stopped and said, "No, feeling like this sucks. Hang on, why do I have to feel like this?" And eventually, you get to a point where you go, "I don't want to feel like this anymore." And I, okay, well, let me go work on it. So, to say, you know, have I had struggles? Yeah, absolutely. I, I was uh, financial struggles. By the time I was I was starting at Type Seven, I was negative eighty thousand dollars in credit card debt. Uh, because it took me 16 months to get from this beginning of the idea over the line with the idea. So personally, I was in the worst financial position of my life. Uh, I, I was, I was really trying to keep a lifestyle afloat that would allow me to go and work on a project that I was destined to work on and dreaming of work on, working on. But I took a risk and, uh, and that was a struggle. And then it pays off and then I moved on. But, uh, there's been many points in my life where I've had struggle that has fueled me to keep going. Uh, and, and it's always been to me something along the lines of like, it, it, I just didn't want to move home. You know, I, I, I mentioned this to you on our, mm. on our prep call the other day. And I, and I said, look, I'm, I'm not a complicated mm-hmm. person. I'm somebody who wants to see the world, who wants to do great work, be remembered for, for, for my work being thoughtful and, 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 and special. And at the end of the day, I, I just, once once I said to myself, you can't move home, it became very clear everything else I had to do, which was just anything. You know, I, when I got to New York, I, I, I had a degree in finance that was worthless because I was going to become uh, – it was, it was the global financial crisis meltdown, part one. Um, I, don't know, I don't know which part we're on now, but it feels like <laughs> the 70th. <laughs> But like 2009, 2010, my, my degree with my parents had paid, uh, had overextended themselves financially to pay for, um, God bless them for doing so, was completely worthless because not a single person uh, in the world was hiring in that field. So I said to myself, you're not moving home. And I, I moved directly to the city. I crashed on a friend's couch. And within a week, I had a gig as a DJ on Wednesday nights at a club called The Eldridge which at the time was like a super hot nightclub. And then it turned into uh, a residency at a hotel. And then that hotel later on, after I became a a party journalist, hired me to start a magazine for them. So I've had this crazy career that's come out of me saying to myself, I refuse to go back. And that perseverance is what I push for. When you started as a DJ, did you experience any sort of imposter syndrome or were you able to just 
own the opportunity and dive right in as the essentially the conductor of the party, right? Because I also started as a DJ, as you know, and I went through imposter syndrome all of the time, like getting booked for these gigs as like sometimes like my third or fourth gig, I was booked for the opening of the Tribeca Film Festival and I was playing on stage with the band, The National. There was a moment where I was like, wait, like, what are these buttons? You know, because I wasn't, I'd never done a proper gigantic gig before. Um, so I'm curious if you experienced any of that. Cause I remember the Eldridge. It was a, it was a hot, hot place. I still experience imposter syndrome. Uh, and I think the people who claim they don't are lying. Uh, I, I think if, if you, mm-hmm, I agree, there's this great <laughs> quote by Mario Andretti, uh, who's a famous racing driver. And he goes, if you're not, yeah. if you're not going fast enough to feel like you're about to crash, you're not, you're not racing. And I think there's there's something to be said that you, if you extract what he's really trying to say there, uh, and and apply it to life in general, you know, if if you're so comfortable and so cozy in what you're doing, you're not pushing, you're you're not pushing mm-hmm. to the next level, you're you're not you're not getting to a place of uh, of, of new heights, you're not taking your career to a new place. In, in any medium, whether it's DJing, whether it's uh, finance, whether it's, you know, if if you're not really out there, you know, overextending yourself to the point of uh, of feeling like, man, I don't even belong in this room, then you're, in, you know, then you're in the wrong room, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it, <laughs> I, I've always believed that. And, yeah. and, uh, and so I, I always have imposter syndrome with almost everything I do. I had it before we got on this call. I'm like, I don't deserve to be in a podcast next to Tyra Banks and, and uh, Ariana Huffington <laughs> and all these, and like, you know, but then I go, you know what? If if I wasn't in that room and if I wasn't in this podcast, I wouldn't be doing the thing I need to be doing anyways. So that's always been my yeah. little like kind of mental trick is like, if you don't feel the imposter syndrome, you are the imposter. <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah, it's oversimplifying it, but but it's really my philosophy is just like if you're not, if you're comfortable, you're not pushing. Yeah, absolutely. I I completely agree with you. I really heard it though in your uh, in your first uh, interview with Brian Grazer. You were like, "I don't even know how to say words anymore." Here we go. This is. <laughs> <laughs> What's funny is that I started working at Vogue in 2013, and then after that, I went to W. I've interviewed countless celebrities over a course of seven years. I've been doing this professionally, and then all of a sudden. When there's a microphone in my face, I'm like, wait, I don't know how to interview. And my mom, I called my mom freaking out. And she was like, you've interviewed Spike Lee, Natalie Portman. You've like, what are you talking about? Of course, you know how to do this. Yes. There's that moment where you forget everything, but then you go, you just all of a sudden, like something kicks in and and you saw it in the podcast. In, yeah. the, begin, in the beginning of the interview, you're just like, you're, you're a little... I don't know how do I describe it. You, you were a, a small deer in, uh, in the headlights, and then by the end, completely, my voice is shaking, Ted. <laughs> but then by the end of it, you're, you're, you know, you, you've got, you, you've taken it by the horns, and, and you, and you're owning it. So, if you, if you hadn't yeah. done that, if you had allowed yourself to become victim to the imposter syndrome as opposed to using it, you would still be in that waiting room, and you wouldn't have got, had the interview and talked to this mm-hmm. amazing guy who's done the most amazing things. So. I don't know. I think we need imposter syndrome because it reminds us that we're in a place that, you know, five levels ago, we had no business ever imagining that we'd be there. So I don't know. I I, I use it as fuel for me, frankly. I want to go back to heartbreak because you briefly touched on it. And 
I don't know if you noticed, but there was so much heartbreak in this season. And I mean, I guess that's also just by virtue of being human. We all have hearts that can and do break. And this is a safe space. So no pressure, but also pressure. Was there a heartbreak that particularly changed you? I think every girlfriend I've had, I thought I was going to marry. Really? Every like serious relationship. Like uh, I've dated a lot of, of, of very great women, but I've had like three or four let's call it three really, really significant relationships where I thought, okay, this is it. This is what I want. And each time I was proven totally wrong, which creates, you know, I, I think heartbreak is actually far more, has far more in common with, uh, with withdrawals. Like uh, it's in, in my mind, it has a lot more to do with what I imagine like a, a heroin addict would feel withdrawing from a drug so powerful. You know, when, when, mm, when, when your yeah. soul is really bonded with somebody and you're really that close and then it's ripped away, you're not experiencing just like to call it heartbreak is inaccurate. I think it has, chemically speaking in your brain, I think it has so much more to do with uh, hard drug withdrawal. And I think once... Each time I've had one of these relationships that has uh, failed, it's allowed me to reassess what actually my goal is in terms of what I want, how to architect my life. Because when I was eight, when mm. I was eighteen, and I was with my girlfriend Emma, I said I want to drop out of university and uh, buy a piece of land in upstate Connecticut and put a pod house on it and have a dog and like live this hippie <laughs> lifestyle. And then when I broke up with uh, Lauren at, at 24, 25, I was like, I'm going to, this is it. That's the end. I'll never love again. This is such a, a mess. Uh, I, I, I've got to flee the city. I need to move to Los Angeles. Uh, because your because your place together was New York, and you needed it, to just it, it was it was everything was toxic because uh, everything reminded me of her. So I couldn't go, uh, you know, I couldn't go to Schiller's Liquor Bar and not think of her. I couldn't go to Finelli's Bar and have a a, oh, a Bloody bar. Mary and like not think of her on a rainy day. So like yeah, I've been there. Every everything in that moment, uh, I, my whole identity at that point in my life was New York. Uh, I, I was I was the biggest New York kid. Mm. My whole childhood, I grew up outside New York. All I wanted to do was ever live in. New New York. And after that relationship, all of a sudden I, I, I moved to LA and I, I started working for a car magazine. But because of the relationship, did that play a big role in your decision to move? Partially. It, it, it played a role. I, I just wasn't happy. It, it, it opened the door for me to be open to opportunities to get out. Mm-hmm. Because I was so like I can't I can't be around it, and we had all you know our, our whole lives were together, and we're still. Luckily, I'm still close with all these women, and I I I keep I count them all as friends, and we keep in touch because when you share something that special with somebody, you, you can't just throw it out, you know. Like there's there's always some part of you that goes, that's a cool that was a special thing, and and I, and they know something about me that as I was in that place and time. That is special to me still, almost to look back on. So, you know, I, I, I speak to them every few months or so. It's nice. But each time it ended, it gave me the chance to go, what the hell am I doing? Let's let's try something totally different. Mm. And then it's put like me... Like master reset. Master reset. And then it's put me down a path that has been so enriching and, and incredible that I, uh, I don't know... I, 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 I love, I almost love every breakup for that reason, 
because it's it's given me a whole new chapter to open. I, I can't describe it better than that. You're really lucky that you're friends with all of them. None of my exes will talk to me. So I wish I'd, I could have some of them back in my life. I was like, what? We clocked four years together. You don't even want to be in contact. Yeah. I, th- I think it's, it takes a certain level of, of emotional security of where I am to be like, you know what? I would actually love to hear from, from, from her today. I, let's, let's give her a call and see what she's up to. And tell me about her new boyfriend. Tell me, I'll tell you about my new girlfriend, whatever. Like, Life is too short for me to to start making enemies. You know, I I, I don't. I, I it would it would crush me if if I wasn't able to keep in touch with 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 everyone in my life. And that's that's also one of the the things that I think nobody really prepares you for when you're young is this feeling of of losing touch with people. Like it's to me is the most painful feeling. And and that it, I, it, I, th- I think about it all the time. Like all these people who I've loved and cared about and spent such powerful time with in my life, you know, to, to, to call them and have them not pick up feels like a personal failure on my behalf. But then if you look at like my parents' generation, people just lost touch with each other because that was how there was no telephones. You, you, you had to like call somebody and leave a message. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> that was like the best you yeah, could do. No texting. And now, <laughs> now we have this surreal yeah. thing where I know exactly what they're up to. Because we all still follow each other on social media, whatever. But but yeah. they become this sort of like walking dead ghost, you know, where you're like, I'm no longer in touch with them, but I know what they're up to. So it's, I don't know, we're, we're in this surreal moment in history right now that is, um, it, it's, it, it doesn't jive well with, for me, losing touch with people, but while having them also very visible. So I don't know, this is something I, 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 I really work on make, maintaining my friendships and maintaining my relationships because they're really important to me. Sleep was another recurring topic. Ariana wrote an entire book about it. Sophie from Sophie Tucker had trouble sleeping on tour. Licky Lee talked about just constant insomnia. It was really just a, a whole thing. Um, you are Carmen San Diego. You nonstop traveling, different city every week. What does your unwinding process in bedtime routine look like? Like, are you just loaded with adrenaline, or do you pass out immediately? I pass out surprisingly well, uh, I have to say. But but my secret is, and I'm not even sure this is good for other people. But I listen to a podcast every night before I go to bed. I I, I truly listen. Which one? Uh, <laughs> You know, it's, I listened to uh, the, the other night. It, it, I, I was really, I fell asleep so quickly. It was like <laughs> Joe Rogan interviewing uh, one of these UFO guys. And it was so out there and so, <laughs> so out of whack. Like, like the more stupid and silly the podcast is, the more my brain cannot pay attention to it and just, you know, I just fall asleep. So uh, that was that was one that worked really well. But I, like uh, Radio Lab, I I always love falling asleep to Radio Lab. There's one specific episode of Radio Lab that always puts me to bed immediately. It's called Octomom, and it's about this octopus mother that was at the bottom of the ocean floor out outside of San Francisco Bay, and it's the most emotional and beautiful uh, podcast I've ever heard. Um, God, that was a really good one. So yeah, I, I I love storytelling and I love having a story read to me as I fall asleep. Uh, my my last real big relationship was with an English girl named uh, Florence and she had a beautiful accent 
And I remember she would like sometimes read, read for me, uh, read something to me. Like she'd find a, an ac- she was studying academia and she would read an acad- academic article and I would be asleep in 30 seconds, you know, like this. So I, I'd like, I like being read the story. That's so funny because how I fall asleep every night is there's this BBC podcaster named Melvin Bragg and he just yes, drones so on good. with other with other Oxford and Cambridge professors about philosophy. It's so so good though. Yeah, he'll be it's like today so we're talking about <laughs> the, the topics are always so random. He's like today we're talking about the Moors and their interaction in 12th century uh you know like <laughs> it's it's the most bizarrely specific thing and he goes well to talk about uh, this we have uh, Lawrence uh, yes, Bonanaba exactly. uh, from uh, from the Cambridge school of exact of, yeah, yeah. of exactly this one specific weird thing. This guy is the he is the number one guy in the world for this one thing. In our it's called in our time. Yes, in our time with Melvin Bragg. Yeah. Oh my God. That's exactly. a great one. Do you have a bedtime poison? Like, do you take melatonin or NyQuil or valerian root? And I'm always asking everyone on this podcast because I have such bad sleep issues. So the rabbit needs tricks to add to her bag. My rule with flying long distances is I never drink. Why? Uh, I think drinking is always like super, super dehydrating. Um, you know, obviously, if maybe you're afraid of flying, maybe it helps you out to do what works for you. But for me, my, my secret for flying long distances was always never drink, pre-drink a ton of water. And then right before boarding, I would take a uh, Xanax. And that was only ever used for flying. And I, I haven't taken a Xanax to go to sleep now in, in so long because I find it to be a, a very powerful drug. Mm. And, and I don't I, it's one of those things where you can feel yourself getting dependent on it very quickly. So I, I understand how it's such an epidemic to become addicted to even something as innocent as melatonin. Yeah. And I'm in a position now where I'm like, actually, I can sleep pretty much anywhere uh, because I'm, I'm because I've done the other stuff in my life that gets me to a point where I'm actually quite still at night. Um, but I, I, there's definitely been points where I was like, wow, maybe I, uh, you know. I, I wish I could take a you know an Ambien, but I I I really I, I don't like taking these drugs. I think people that take them end up in a position where they're in controlled by them, and I and I, I don't I don't advocate that. Like I I don't like feeling out of control. If that makes sense. Yeah. No, I definitely hear you on that. I took Ambien once in my life and was so freaked out actually by the intensity of the sleep effect that. That was it was the one and only time I ever took it. So I also agree with you. Like yeah. the idea of a drug totally controlling your system and you having no agency, that definitely threw me for a loop. Well, I mean, you, I I was a DJ for a while, so like I I understand the drug culture to a degree, but I have to say it's just not a culture that's worth investing in. in at my point in, in my career, I'm, I'm having too much fun <laughs> doing other stuff. A lot of our guests have hit some degree of rock bottom that led them to reevaluate how they're living their lives. Tucker from Sophie Tucker was on track to becoming a professional basketball player, but then his health derailed. He had to rethink his life, started making music from bed on his computer. And young Pueblo started meditating after he stopped partying. And also he had a minor heart attack from the partying. So there's all these different rock bottoms. Yours doesn't necessarily have to be this dire health situation, but did you ever hit a low point that made you reevaluate things or change the course of your work? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I've I've reevaluated, like I said, I've reevaluated my relationship with alcohol several times uh, over my career. Um, I, I've I've gone through periods of of seeking treatment to try to find out what my relationship actually was. The biggest thing I took away from from going to Alcoholics Anonymous and talking to a lot of people that had real, real, real struggles is that I actually learned that my struggles didn't quite match up with theirs. My, my struggles were really focused more around ego and ego, mm. ego-driven drinking, ego-driven uh, feeling invincible, ego, ego, ego. And e- what do you mean by that, though, exactly? Like, what feeling would you feel on alcohol that was ego-driven? No, the, 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 what I'm trying to get back to is, is actually that e- ego is the thing that allows me to succeed, and ego is also the thing that t- tries to destroy me every day. So ego is pride, mm. ego is is confidence, ego is all, all all the things that allow me to do my job really well are also the things that get me into a position where I'm no longer proud to be that person. So uh, after talking to a few friends about it, after making a few uh, social faux pas, I was like, oh, let me reevaluate this. Let me stop everything. Like this isn't working in a way that feels sustainable for me. This isn't where I want to be right now in terms of my relationship with drinking, my, my, my relationship with my friends who invite me to these beautiful things that I get to go to, my relationship with my work. I said, let me just stop everything. And uh, I took six months off. When was this? This was 2019. So before uh, all, all the, the COVID started. And it was the most beautiful experience of my life because it was, it was like going, you know, go, going and talking to people who really work on their struggles is a very powerful thing for you to do because it's, it's, so, mm-hmm. it's so humbling because you go, actually, that's a lot like what I feel. Or like, actually, that's more than I feel, but I, I sympathize with it. So you go, one, immediately, I'm not alone. Like, I'm not alone in being concerned right. about, about how these things are, are affecting my life. And two, it's just like, like, like the analogy I said with, with therapy earlier, I took my hat off. And I, I looked at the hat and I could talk about the hat with a professional and other people that are going through the same thing. And I'd really recommend, e- even if you think you're struggling a little bit with alcohol or drug use or anything, these rooms that you can go to and talk to people are so fascinating and and really helpful in terms of just giving yourself a dialogue about what's going on in your body. I'm, I'm still so grateful for the conversations I had in those rooms. And ultimately, it's given me the power to know that I can always go back to them if I feel that I'm getting to a place where I don't like to be. So treatment is always there. It's it's a huge journey. Is you know I, I don't know if if in ten years time I'm still somebody who enjoys drinking, but at the moment I have a nice relationship with it. But but I made this rule with myself that if something changes, if I'm no longer if I if I'm mm. waking up unhappy with with who I was the night before. Uh, when, when I had a few drinks with some friends or something like that, it's, it's, it's to me now I've opened up that pathway to get back to where I want to be and I can go, okay, I'm ready. To, I, I, I'm, I'm going to stop this again. Uh, I don't like what's happening here. I'm going to go back to working on that. And there's no shame in rethinking it. And, right. and there's no shame in saying, actually, well, the, the strange thing is, is when you say to all your friends, I don't drink anymore. That is the weirdest and hardest thing at first, but then everyone kind of gets along with it. I think there's also an association a bit with masculinity when um, when men get together. That's the vibe that I have, you know, to like drink beer or like watch football. And I can imagine the social pressure as well. Even if you say no, there is still some residual social pressure that's there. And 
When Justin came on the show, we talked a ton about masculinity and how men have been conditioned to say yes to things they don't necessarily want to and to hide their emotions and feelings because it's associated with weakness and weakness is feminine and feminine is bad, of course, right? And I'm curious where your idea of masculinity was formed and what your role model of masculinity was growing up. I had one foot in both camps. You know, I I was on one foot obsessed with James Bond, but then I was also raised by like a super powerful, strong mother who demanded I treat women in a certain way. So I I, I kind of like, how can I say, I can sympathize with people who got both. I understand people that come from a toxic masculine household because I think had my mother not have been there, I would have grown up with like, you know, James Bond is my uh, my role model, which I think is super unhealthy. But because she was there, she was always taking the piss out of him. <laughs> and like in what way? Like what lessons would she kind of impart to you? Or- just like she would be like, oh God, you know, she would groan if we were all watching a Bond movie together. She'd be like, oh my, no one actually. <laughs> she would like no one actually behaves this way. Yeah, like that, she's like, just do, don't don't do what he's doing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and 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 we always had a good sense of humor about it you know my my father is not someone who's ever been uh, overly he, he's he's a very thoughtful design oriented human being he he builds houses and designs them from the soul so he's and i think to do what he does you have to be someone who's really thoughtful about the human condition because you have to think about how men and women interact in spaces mm-hmm. so my dad's always been someone who to me was not you know like he always loved like masculine stuff like uh, car racing and and James Bond, you know, I grew up listening to Sade, like, uh, and Madonna. So, like, he bought me, like, my first Spice Girls album because he, he thought, oh, I, you, you know, so, like, I didn't grow up in, in a household that was, like, ACDC or nothing, you know? Like, it, it was it was very much like, no, we're, we're, we're students of the world. We're here to learn about from music and, and life and culture and food yeah. from everybody. And that's our, that's, our, that's our gift, that we get to do that. Uh, that we get to receive that gift. And, uh, and so that's, that's, that's the people mm-hmm. that I come from. And would your parents like meet the girls that you brought home and were they excited for you to start your dating life or were oh, they? Oh yeah. They, they, they were like, what's taking you so long? <laughs> <laughs> Why were you late bloomer? Ah, I mean, I didn't have my first girlfriend until, until university. So I, 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 18 and then she was, we were at university. So it wasn't like I was bringing her home. So I think my parents were always excited for me to start dating, always excited for me to have my life. And, uh, cause they, mm-hmm. they're really people that, that, that are desperate to, to get as much value out of, you know, this, our time, our laps around the sun as possible. They're, they're like true lovers of life. And they, they wanted me to get to experience everything that they love about life as well. And it makes mm. me tear up just thinking about it. Cause that's really the, what I believe that they, that that's their message and their gift to me is, is just our time here is so limited. How can you afford to waste it? Not loving, not enjoying, not trying all these things. Like you have to do it now, because if you don't do it now, when are you going to do it? Because that's that's the gift I received from them, and yes, I've had many ups and downs and struggles and hilarious things all along the way. But by and large, like I, I'm receiving the gift, and and I, mm-hmm. I don't know, it feels good. Last question we ask every guest: What drives you? Well, I said I touched upon it earlier. 
And what drives me is, like I said, very simple. It's, it's I, it, I just don't want to move home. I, I love my home, and I love I love my parents, and I love I love all of these things that I come from. But I I want to keep pushing. Uh, I want to see how far I can go. I want to see how much the, the sweater unravels. I'm desperate to go as far as possible, and that doesn't mean financially successful or or anything like that. It means. I want to get to the end of, of my life and know that I have seen and done and enjoyed and loved and tried as much as humanly possible. And if anything gets in the way of that, I, 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 I go a different way. That, my friends, was my conversation with Ted Gashu. And our last episode of the season. We are going to take a little break because... We need to mind our mental health here over at the Driven Minds HQ. But we're going to be back within a couple of months with more conversations with amazing people and even something a little new. You can follow Ted at Ted Gashu and me at Gillian Sagansky. I always want to hear from you about whatever you want me to hear about, who you want to hear from on the podcast, what struggles you've been weathering that you'd want to unpack, or just to say, hey because I'm going to miss you. Until next time.